Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today we're speaking to a bookseller called Marius Kocioski, who is the author of a new book called A Factotum in the Book Trade. Marius began life in rural Ontario in Canada, but moved to London where he embarked on a long and winding career in the antiquarian bookselling business, spread across several notable firms. His book is a series of essays on the colleagues, collectors, literary figures, and the books that shaped his life from the 1970s onwards. He writes about friendships, feuds, eccentrics, and provides remarkable insight into the highs and lows of selling rare books. Marius joins us from London. Welcome, Marius. Well, thank you. Um, it's very brave of you to have me. Um, <laughs> it's very brave of you to come on the I, podcast. I, 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 and I, I wish I, um, we, you could have introduced me as a bookseller in the present tense. Alas, I'm no more a bookseller. I'm, um, I'm, a, book, I'm, I'm a retired bookseller. That's okay. Um, I, I have a feeling that if you're a bookseller, you're a bookseller for life. Oh, am I? Ah, right. Okay, I'll accept that. I'll accept that. Or, right. um, or a factotum. Yes. Yeah. What is a, a factotum? Or oh, am I even saying that right? It's a lovely no, word. But can you? Factotum. I had to look it up. Can you explain it? Factotum. Well, it really derives from the Latin facere, which is to do, and the word totum, which means the whole. And there was even a Latin phrase called Johannes Factotum, which translates as a jack of all trades. So that's where that saying comes from. Um, I'm not too sure it's uh, a word I would have chosen to describe myself, but it was a, a bookseller I worked for by the name of Bernard Stone who first called me that. And given that its most common meaning is a servant who has the management of his master's affairs, I'm quoting the Oxford English Dictionary, it seemed apt that I should use it for the title of my book. Right. Um, And I think also the word uh, serves to distinguish me from those who have taken the plunge. which is not something I was ever to do without, uh, ever able to do without uh, thinking it might cause damage to my own writing career. Right, yes, because you are also a writer as well, with, with uh, travel and poetry to your name. Yes, indeed, yes, yes. I've, I've written several books, a couple on, on Syria, one of which was published by the publisher of um, Factotum. Um, uh, the Pigeon Wars of Damascus. I published essays, poetry. I've got a new book coming out very soon on Naples. It's coming out at the end of May, which I spent quite a few years working on. And whereas um, Factotum uh, or a Factotum the book trade, I, I I wrote it in the record six months, which is um, unheard of for me. Your, your publisher said um, it, he had a bit of a tough time to get you to write the book. Oh, indeed. Yes, right. yes. Oh, he kept tormenting me for about five years, 
saying that I was the only person who could write this book from this particular angle. And, you know, I was still working in the book trade, and I suppose I was a bit reluctant at that time to, well, to, I didn't want to really write about present times, and I was a bit reluctant to write about the past as well. But um, I finally, I, I, I found myself about, having anything to write and I phoned Dan Wells and I said okay I'll have a shot at it and I wrote one chapter and I put it down for several months I never told Dan that I had abandoned the book but I did at that point um, and then came as you well know as everyone knows to COVID um, epidemic and I you know found myself one day not going back to work and then realizing that probably I'd never go back to work again um, and so it was in that very strange space of that of those first that first sort of six month lockdown that I found myself writing as quickly as possible um, I think partly employing an elegiac tone because I I felt the book trade was dying in any case and that you know this was the coup de grace as it were. Let me ask you about one of the places that you worked. Mm. So you actually spend quite a lot of time writing about a book selling firm called uh, Bertram Rota. Yes. Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. it's still yes. around but in a different form i believe but you're describing it uh in the early 80s so can you describe that business and what what its no. standing was in the book trade at the it, time it had, it had the the highest possible standing with respect to modern first editions and the um and we also dealt with literary archives and that, in a way, was where we really excelled. Uh, I mean, I, I, I can't, you know, I can't tell you how many important archives went through our hands. And that involved, you know, cataloging them and then offering them to various universities, usually Tulsa or Texas. Um, and um, I, it was really the, the most enjoyable aspect of my work at Rotis. Otherwise, I did, you know, from day to day, I did cataloging. I cataloged books and I sold books and, you know, and all the routine work. Um, uh, but yes, I was there for 14 years. And of course, uh, I, it was for me uh, a training ground. I, I um, most of what I learned in the book trade was there. But then I had an offer from a man by the name of Bernard Stone, who was who ran a poetry bookshop. And I thought, gosh, this is right up my line. And he wanted me to manage the, the place. So after 14 years, I thought, right, it's time to make a big move. Right. And so a Bertram 
you'd been a poetry specialist, correct? I wouldn't say a poetry specialist, no. Um, I, 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 it was modern first editions, modern literature, right. for the most part. Poetry, of course, was part of it. And I can say that I, uh, um, in all truth, that I had quite a bit of experience already of the poetry scene. So I knew my poets. I knew, you know, most of the living poets. So that helped. But I, I wouldn't go so far as as to, as to describe myself as a specialist. Okay, right. But uh, you um, you actually had worked with the Poetry Society in yeah. London before you went into bookselling, which um, was in was definitely an interesting part of the book because poets aren't dull, are they? <laughs> well, um, I, no, I, I, I think I'd have to agree with you there, but um, it was an arts administration. And if anyone has a genuine love of the arts, I think arts administration is the very last thing to go into. <laughs> um, it's the closest I've ever been to being a male prostitute, I like to tell people. Um, it went against everything I believed. Um, it was, it really was all just committee meetings. Uh, there was hardly ever any discussion as to what could be done about the state, the current state of poetry in the country. It was a self-serving administration. And I really, I must say, was quite uh, a, a good lesson in in the perils of working in in that particular world and so i floated i drifted from there into book selling um i i, I often look upon you know book selling as a, a floating world for people who are not capable of doing anything else and that was roughly my position at the time right i so walked I walked into Virtual Rota with a bag of books and one of the, the directors there, George Lawson, who already knew me a little bit as a poet, asked me what I was doing these days. And I said, I'm unemployed. And he, the next following week, he took me to a restaurant where he, uh, I got lying drunk and I agreed to come into work the next day. And that was the end of um, that was the end of it for me. I was a bookseller for the rest of my working life. What a stroke of luck! And and Bertram Rota was the type of place, uh, an open bookshop, where some pretty notable figures would walk through the door. Oh yes, oh absolutely. Um, I mean, uh, people like you know, I, I remember Graham Greene walking in standing at the entrance to the shop and just glaring down the whole length of the place with rage in his eyes and i thought goodness me what whatever whatever went whatever is the problem here and i i found out years later why he walked in with such disdain it's because he he came in before and asked to see the director anthony rota and the fellow working at the desk said, may I ask who's calling? And Graham, <laughs> Graham Reed, I think, was utterly appalled, you know, not being recognized. 
but yes, it was it was a shop into which into into which quite a few literary people came in. Um, one reason being, of course, that we were selling quite often selling their archives. Right, right. Um, um, but I know before my time, it was, uh, Robert Graves came in, and you know all sorts of people like that. Goodness, yeah. yeah. Um, um, okay, so you descri- described lots of colleagues, uh, colleagues from other firms, colleagues that you worked side by side with. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Is there one particular colleague who influ- influenced you the most? Well, it's very difficult difficult to give a straight answer to that. Um, if I had become a bookseller in the fullest sense, then maybe I would have looked to models or examples. Um, but I suppose where I worked at Bertram Motor, one of my colleagues, John Byrne, um, taught me that one had to be very precise in one's cataloging. And I started in at the deep end cataloging fine press books where you had to describe every little blemish. If, it, if there was a single drop on water drop in the back of in the lower corner of the lower back cover, you had to describe it. So it was in that respect a very good training ground. And he was um, a very he was one of the directors and extremely demanding. And probably I learned more from him than from anyone else at the time. So that when I moved from fine press books to, let's say, modern verse editions, it, it wasn't a great problem for me, you know, knowing how to catalog them. Right. And that level of detail in the description is because the clientele demand that level of knowledge. Like yes. Yes, before parting with, because most of the sales were through the catalogues we issued. And so you didn't want books being returned to you as, you know, not as described. Yep. Um, so you had to be very careful in, in, in how you describe books. Right. So you describe, um, you write a lot about that process and about your work with catalogues, but also how collectors would react to uh, a particular uh, catalog going out and how sometimes they would be disappointed if something they really wanted within the catalog has already gone. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, you would have tears on the phone or you would have people shouting um, saying, why didn't you offer me this? I, you knew I wanted it. And the thing is, we did try our best to supply people with titles. But, you know, you, when you're dealing with thousands of books, it's not always easy to pair the book and the collector. Um, but, I mean, that didn't really happen too often. Um, the, the, the interesting ones were the deeply obsessive collectors. Um, you know, some of the some of the most bizarre people I'd ever come across in my life. So could um, you give a give us a couple of examples, perhaps ooh, one example of someone well, who is, is obsessive? One, there was one man called John Hale, um, who collected what he called weirds, what we would probably call fantasy literature, but his word for 
it was weird. So I collect weirds. And if he, I mean, he, he was an extraordinarily, an extraordinarily reclusive figure who lived on a diet of um, raw onions and tinned sardines and who really lived for his books and very little else. Um, and he, he, he was very, a very remote figure, um, very, really quite afraid of telling you about the books he wanted, because if he knew that you wanted them, he would, he feared that you would up the prices. But gradually he got to trust me. And I remember one day he walked in with a copy we were talking, we, we talked about various authors and we, we discussed Franz Kafka. And I said, would you consider Franz Kafka a weird fantasy writer? And he did. I didn't. I thought Kafka was a kind of super realist. One day, um, John Hale walked into the shop clutching an absolutely mint copy of The Trial, a book which at that point was worth quite a few hundred pounds. And which now goes in the re for something like in the region of two and a half thousand pounds. And he had this incredible stare, you know, and he looked at me and said, I've come to sell you this book. And I said, Okay, I'll show it to the director. It's a rare book. And he said, No, I've come to sell it to you. And I said, Well, I can't, I couldn't possibly afford it. And he said, that's not what I said to you. I've come to sell you the book. I haven't told you my price for it. And I said, John, look, in all truth, I couldn't possibly afford it. And he said, but you haven't heard my price. And I said, all right, go ahead. And he said, 25 pounds. And I said, but it's worth a lot more than that. He said, look, I'm not, he said, I haven't come in to argue. I want you to have this book. I paid 25 pounds for it and you will pay me 25 pounds on condition that you never resell it. And where I'm sitting right now is on the shelves behind me. A lovely copy of the trial that you gave me. And you can't resell it. I wouldn't want to. I'm, you know, I'm, um, this is another problem. If you're, it's very difficult to have a love of books and to be a bookseller because the, really the temptation is to sell. And I find it, I always found that very difficult. I only ever sold my own books when I needed money to go traveling or to, you know, to support a project, a writing project of mine. But um, no, Kafka is something I'll um, certainly keep on my shelves. Right. So those obsessive collectors, um, sometimes you hear the term bibliomania banded around. Do you think it's a genuine condition? Um, I'm, I'm a bit hesitant to use that word because it is now acquired, um, uh, you know, psychoanalytic overtones. Um, I think, and I've even read somewhere that bibliomania is, con is considered by some to be a form of mental illness. 
I think in all my time in the book trade, I've come across two cases of people who I would consider tragic because they collected books, they collected anything that they came across without any real love for the books. They simply had to have books. And I remember one case in particular, a man who'd been threatened with divorce unless he sold his books. And I went to visit him and there was this poor fellow surrounded by thousands, tens of thousands of books lying on the floor. His wife nowhere in sight. And I started going through them and there wasn't a single book worth taking away. And I, I said, look, there's nothing I can do. And there were tears in his eyes by this point. Um, and I, I said, look, I'll get in touch with a general dealer who will just remove them for you. He, I don't think he can pay you anything. Well, this dealer went in and took one look and said, no, thank you. And I don't know whatever happened to him or his marriage. But, you know, that that kind of bibliomania is rare. But, of course, I've. Uh, I, 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 I came across a lot of collectors who were obsessive. Um, I wouldn't call it a mental illness, but they simply had to have certain books and they would be incredibly upset if they, if they didn't get them. You know. um, uh, but I, I, I always think it's important to make a distinction between bibliophiles. Yeah. Uh, a bibliophile, someone has a love of books, and those who one one might call bibliomanes, who have a mania for books. As I said, I there are bibliomanes, but I I I just find myself uh, being quite res reserved when it comes to using that word, bibliomania. And I know there's you know, there's a great book called and and then. And anatomy of bibliomania, and there are incredible stories, of course, of people, you know, who would um, probably, you know, destroy their own lives in pursuit of books. Uh, in the book, uh, you obviously you're writing a lot about books, but mainly mm. you're writing about people, and mm -hmm. a lot of them are booksellers uh, that you're working with or you came into contact with, and you're you're pretty frank, um, quite honest about them. Now I'm wondering, the London bookselling world, rare bookselling world, is a small one, and everyone knows everyone mm, else. Were yes. you worried about upsetting the apple cart? Well, I suppose it might have been one of the reasons for my hesitating to write the book in the first place, because I was still drawing sustenance from the apple cart. Um, but when I did finally decide to write write it, I, I. I, I made the decision not to write about living people in the main. Uh, so most of the people, the people in the book are no longer with us. Most of them, uh, you know, Peter Ellis, of course, the last person I worked for, he's still very active. Right. The shop is gone, alas, but, um, you know, uh, but I've, I've been very, I really, I'd rather not write about living people, you know. Um, right. I have been perhaps a little bit less discreet with the dead, 
And it's not that I'm out for vengeance or anything else. It's a, it, uh, book selling is an intensely human theater. Um, and there you find people's weaknesses, their obsessions. Um, and when it came to writing the book, I was faced with a huge problem. Do I present a pleasant fiction, which would, you know, tidily fit a lot of people's ideas about what booksellers, bookselling is and what booksellers are like? Or do I tell things as I perceive them? And I'm not very good when it comes to telling fictions. So um, in some cases, I suppose I have reveal the darker side of book selling, if you like. Um, I'm not out to do anyone harm. Um, but, you know, it's, as I said, it's an intensely human sphere. And, and you did it for many years. So which bit of the theatre did you enjoy the most? People. People. I, um, it's what I most miss about the book trade. I miss the serendipity of of never knowing who would walk in that day, what kind of conversation one might have, um, what kind of book one might be offered. Um, you know, there were some incredible surprises. I remember one day a man walking in with the first edition of John Donne's poems, and I nearly collapsed. I mean, I, I, I thought, like, goodness, I've never been offered such a wonderful book. And I said, I told him we'd definitely be interested. It was a lovely copy. I never saw him again. And I never heard of anyone else buying that particular copy. Word does get out in the trade, you know, who bought that fantastic first edition of John Donne. I yeah. can only assume was out there somewhere still that he decided not to sell it. But there you go. I mean, it's, um, but, you know, I have the, the pleasure in book selling, for me in any case, it wasn't to do so much with value of books. It was to do with people's enjoyment in them. And there's nothing more boring than selling wonderful books to boring collectors. I, you know, I loved dealing with people who would find a book for two or three pounds in the outside shelf and be incredibly excited about it. The, the, those people tend to give, give me more pleasure than anyone else, you know. Um, and I, 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 and it is here, I think, that we get into a really contentious area, area. not what to say about people I've known, but um, how the book trade itself has changed. And I know a lot of people will be much more upset with me for saying that if anything is killing off the rare book trade, it's the rare book dealers. No who, in that they have, they're now paying too much attention to condition, for example. Um, it, it used to be a rare book was a rare book. If you found it in the dust wrapper, so much the better. If you found it in the 
dust wrapper, which may have had a few nicks on the edges. Well, so be it. It's not quite as valuable, let's say, as a pristine copy. But booksellers have been deceiving collectors into thinking a book is not a book unless it is in absolutely perfect condition. And that's, I think, where things started to go badly wrong in the book trade. Um, it turns book collecting, book collecting itself into a kind of fetishism, which I think is wrong. I think it's been a terrible mistake. Um, and so you get, you know, the worst thing of all is getting another book dealer coming into the shop and saying, do you have any highlights? And I find that hugely offensive. Um, I say, yes, they're all highlights. They're all highlights to somebody, maybe not you, but they are to somebody. Right. So what you get are dealers coming in looking, you know, for the top prizes, prizes as it were. And it, it, that to me is where book selling has gone completely wrong. You know. So would you, um, would you um, also say that one of the changes that you saw was, was like the, the, surge in popularity of uh, modern first editions? Um, I think they have always been popular. Um, it's not so much the surge in popularity as the death of the old style bookseller. Oh, sorry, the old style book collector. And with right. it, of course, the old style bookseller. Yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 I've, in, in my day, I've sold ropey copies of extremely rare books so you'd have the collector standing there shivering at finally at finally having found a copy after looking for it for 40 years now it's not it's not a book if it doesn't have a dust wrapper i think that's a rather sad uh reflection on what has happened in, in the trade right and i know a lot of people will come down hard on me for that because their business depends on selling pristine copies at incredibly high prices. Right, which, which of course makes it less, well, makes book collecting less accessible. Right? There's yes, lots of people yes. who have to collect it, it, on a budget. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Um, book selling has become a hobby for the, for the extremely rich. It shouldn't be like that. Book selling should be available to everyone. Um, I've known book collectors who collect cheap books, but books which interest them. So there has been a change over the years. And um, and I'm not surprised that, you know, the bookshops are beginning to disappear. Uh, you know, the, um, the general secondhand bookshop is rapidly becoming a thing of the past. Right. Um, we're now selling, you know, from home, from catalogs, from websites. Whereas, whereas I've always maintained that the soul of the trade is in the bookshop. I think something happens in shops, something magical. And, and um, you worked with, uh, with Peter Ellis in Cecil Court for... Yes. Um, yes. A number of he years. Would, he would, absolutely, yes. Um, and they were very pleasurable years indeed. I think he would disagree with me, 
with me a little. Um, he's, the shop is gone now. He operates from home. And he's hugely relieved to be free of the responsibilities, the responsibilities of running a bookshop. I don't blame him in a way. Um, you know, bureaucracy has has made things so incredibly difficult. The days are gone when we just open up a little space and sell books from it. You know, you're now having to fill in countless forms and pay. The rates and the taxes, and it's it's not a good time for for booksellers and bookshops. Um, um, so now that you're retired, mm, do you miss yeah. it? Do you miss antiquarian bookselling? Uh, yes, I do. I do in a way. I mean, I, I I it's not as if I haven't got anything to do. I've got plenty to do. I've got my next book to write, but I miss as again I you know again I miss that. Um, that element of meeting people in shops. Uh, a lot of my friendships have stemmed from the bookshop. Um, um, and you know, the, 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 the serendipity, again, the serendipity that comes of just working in the bookshop. And my goodness, um, if only it could happen every day, you go for whole weeks when nothing happens. But then suddenly it does, and you think, well, it's all worthwhile. You know, it's wonderful. Yeah, Graham Greene walks through the door and he's furious. Yes. Well, yeah, so I've had this amazing conversation with um, with a, a folklorist from America called Henry Glassie, who I didn't know it at the time. He was one of the, the world's greatest folklorists, and we've become close friends simply because of meeting in that shop. Right. So now you're at home and you have a bit more time to spend with your own book collection. Mm -hmm. um, when you look yes. at the shelves behind you, what what are the books up there that you're most thrilled to own, apart from the Kafka? Well, you know, here again, I'll tell you a little story. Um, I bumped into a bookseller on the street one day and invited him back for a cup of coffee. He came in, I went to make the coffee, and I came back. And he was going through my books as quickly as possible, checking to see if they're first editions. And, and noting their values. And I turned to him and I said, look, um, these books are not for sale. They're my books. And he said, yes, but you've got a lot of valuable books. And I said, no, these books are of no value whatsoever to me, as long as they're on my shelves. Their value resides elsewhere. And so I could, I could, I suppose, uh, go to my shelves and pull out Franz Kafka's The Trial and say, look, I've got this wonderfully valuable book, which I got for very, very little. But... As I get older, what I go to is the intrinsic value of books. And you asked me to choose an example, and I thought, all right, I'll um, I'll choose I'll choose something which doesn't have any great monetary value. It's a pamphlet published in 1890 by Robert Louis Stevenson, a writer I greatly love. 
Um, as I said, it's a pamphlet of only, let me see, I've got it right here. It's, um, it's 30 pages, and it's called Father Damien, an open letter to the Reverend Dr. Hyde of Honolulu from Robert Louis Stevenson. There's a story behind this pamphlet, which speaks volumes to me. Father Damien was a Catholic missionary who worked on one of the Pacific Islands, who worked solely with lepers. He ran a leper colony. Um, as, a as a consequence of this, he got very ill and, and died. But he was visited on that island by an American uh, Reverend Hyde. Gosh, wouldn't it be lovely if it was um, Mr. Hyde of Dr. Jack and Mr. Hyde, but no, it wasn't. Um, and this Dr. Hyde wrote an article in the newspaper speaking about how unsanitary the conditions were, how dirty Father Damien was, how ragged his clothes were, and basically sneered at this man. Stevenson was not, I think, deeply religious. I don't think he had any particular sympathy for the Catholic Church. I don't think he even had much sympathy for the Presbyterian Church. He came from Scotland. But he had huge admiration for Father Damien. And he wrote this open letter, which is one of the masterpieces of invective. He takes down this Dr. Reverend Hyde bit by bit by bit. And what this pamphlet tells me about Stevenson is what I love most in the man as a writer, his innate sense of justice. And that little pamphlet, I was so delighted to get it. It means so much to me because it speaks to me of justice, uh, which is what ultimately one looks for in literature. Marius, one last question, which we ask to all our guests, and that is what book or books are you currently reading? Oh, well, I've just finished reading uh, a magisterial book um, um, called, um, oh gosh, um, uh, I'm sorry about this. Um, That's all right. Barry, Barry Lopez. How can I forget ah. it? Uh, Barry Barry Lopez, Lopez, yeah. yeah, a book called Horizon, which is over 500 pages in length, but I consider it to be a magisterial essay in which he draws conclusions from a whole life of traveling and, you know, being in remote places in the Antarctic and, um, and being in the desert and he draws some conclusions with respect to the future of the human race, some of which are very dark indeed. I've just finished their book and I've just started reading um, a book um, by a writer who is 
ignored in England, but uh, still hugely revered in Scotland, called Neil Gunn, who wrote an extraordinary number of books. And this is um, a novel called Young Art and Old Hector, published in 1942. And it's turning out to be one of the strangest, most magical books I've read in decades. So I'm delighted. It's a new discovery for me. I have one um, peculiar habit, call it an obsession if you like, but if I hear an author mentioned three times in a row, I have to read them. And I just come back from the Isle of Lewis where I heard three different people raise the subject of Neil Gunn, who I'd never read before, and I thought, right, I'm now obliged to read them. Right, that was your signal. That was my signal, yeah. Brilliant. All right. Uh, that's all we have time for today. Um, thank you, Marius, for joining us. Um, it's been lovely talking to you. Well, thank you very much for having me. Um, I, I hope you can cobble this into something better than that which I produced. I'm sure I can. Um, Cobbling is my greatest skill. Long. Great. Okay. Cobble away. <laughs> Marius Good. is the author of uh, A Factotum in the Book Trade, uh, which is just out. My name is Richard Davis, and you've been listening to an Abe yeah. Books podcast, and we'll see you all again soon.